When I ask to speak about the criminal justice system, people often think that I'm going to talk about uh, potions and mysteries and things that are magical. Uh, but the criminal justice system and the criminal law is nothing really magical and mysterious. Uh, defense attorneys, if you are, if you've been arrested and you are actually interviewing defense attorneys, defense attorneys will act like uh, that it's a big mystical, magical place uh, when you go in, when you get into the criminal justice system. Um, and I think that they act like that because there are so many different areas of law that actually uh, meet when you get involved in criminal law. You have constitutional law. You have statutory law, which may be criminal offenses. You have statutory law that controls uh, whether or not judges can grant bonds. You have evidence and the rules of evidence in terms of what comes in at a jury trial. You have jury selection and the details and laws associated with jury selection. You have court procedure. You have motions practice. You have cross-examination of witnesses that are on the stand and what you can and cannot use in terms of cross-examination, you have objections. And so because there are so many different areas of law that combine, a lot of defense attorneys, especially when they're young, act as if the law is just a big, uh, uh, mysterious, magical place. Um, and that's important. I think one of the important things when you get involved in the criminal justice system is to make a distinction between those lawyers that are practicing or have been practicing for less than five years and those lawyers that have been practicing for more than five years. If you're sitting in a lawyer's office and that lawyer has been practicing for less than five years and he's talking about training for marathons or, or shaving another two or three strokes off of his golf game, then you need to get up and go someplace else because there's too many areas of law for him to learn, for him to be or her to be involved in a whole bunch of other avocations and hobbies. Uh, but once you have really devoted yourself to the practice of law for a number of years, uh, a lot of the mystery is gone. Yes, the law changes, but the law changes relatively slowly. <clears throat> and so keeping up with changes in the law is not as difficult as actually learning the law in the first place. One of the other reasons that lawyers like to act, act as if, defense attorneys specifically like to act as if uh, the, the criminal justice system is such a strange and, and mysterious place is uh, defense attorneys like to play the role of protector, of course, for a price, that being their fee. They like to play the role of uh, protector. Um, this place is very strange and only I can, t can show you which berries you can eat and only I can show you which path and if you, in fact, uh, don't eat the berries that I point out that should be eating or you don't follow me down this particular path, you'll end up dying or something other, something else very grave will happen to you. And that's fine. I mean, that's ultimately how defense attorneys make money, and maybe that's how a lot of things, a lot of people and institutions make money today by uh, by feeding you a whole bunch of fear, and then uh, convincing you that they in fact have the answer. But the reality is, the the primary role of a defense attorney is to be a trial attorney. That is the primary role of a defense attorney. Uh, he must be a trial attorney. The true power of a criminal defense attorney lies in the criminal defense attorney's ability to convince a jury to see things his way. Um, 
And if, in fact, the defense attorney has been successful in uh, convincing more juries than not to see things his way, then that defense attorney begins to gain a great deal of power when negotiating with prosecutors because the true power in negotiating with the prosecutor is in fact the defense attorney's reputation for uh, having juries return uh, verdicts of not guilty. Uh, therefore, when you're talking to a defense attorney, um, irrespective of how many cases that defense attorney has won or lost, one of the questions for that defense attorney is how many cases have you tried? If the defense attorney has tried less than five cases, it's the same as if he's uh, training for a marathon. You need to get up and run someplace else because ultimately that defense attorney um, uh, doesn't know what's coming at jury trial, has no real negotiating power ultimately with the prosecutor um, because they don't have any reputation for trying cases and having juries uh, ultimately find the person not guilty. But uh, the main point there, the the law is nothing magical and mysterious. The law, when you talk about criminal law and the criminal justice system, is, uh, in a lot of respects, not even complex. At its core, the law is the manner in which we govern ourselves. Look at it this way. Six guys are sitting around watching a football game and the power goes out. Um, uh, the power goes out not just to uh, the house that they're in, but uh, uh, 50 mile radius. Okay, so there's no TV, there's no radio, there's no anything. The power is out. These six guys then decide, hmm, let's sit down and think about what type of society we want. Uh, and they start to form some rules on how people should treat one another and how people should not treat one another. And when they determine how people should not treat one another, they also construct some punishments that will be associated with people um, behaving in a certain way, or certain adverse or negative way. Uh, that's basically what, how, how the criminal justice system works and how criminal law works. You have some folks who have been um, elected, many of which are not lawyers, who then um, go down and take a seat uh, in the Gold Dome, and whether that uh, be in Atlanta, which is here in Georgia, or Trenton in New Jersey, uh, or any of the uh, other uh, capitals of uh, the states, they sit there and they uh, devise new laws. But they're not trained attorneys, and they have no idea how uh, those laws are going to play themselves out when they actually get to, uh, get to a courtroom. Uh, but they decide uh, what they think is, is uh, fair and reasonable. So back to our example, six guys. Six guys sit, uh, let's say they're between uh, 20 and 30, and we'll deal with one example, armed robbery. Uh, and they imagine in their mind their mother going to a Mac machine, uh, an ATM, and somebody coming up behind her as she uh, presses 300 and $300 comes out uh, at 10 a.m. in the morning and the person puts a gun to their mother's face and the person takes the money and jumps in the car and, and pulls off. What should the punishment for that be when that person is caught? Everybody has a calm head now. What should the punishment be? It's not necessarily their mother that, that this is going to happen to. It might happen to their neighbor. It may happen to somebody they don't even know. But what should the punishment be? Well, the legislature here in Georgia has determined that that deserves a mandatory minimum of 10 years in prison. 
Uh, and so that's the punishment. Mandatory minimum 10 years in, in prison, maximum of 20 years in prison, or possible life in, life in prison. But the numbers, minimum 10, maximum 20. Uh, and that's how the law is passed. And so when someone's accused of armed robbery, um, their first, their first uh, point is they didn't catch me with a gun. Well, you don't need to be caught with a gun if the person standing at the Mac machine says that you pointed a gun at them uh, and that's why they uh, ultimately gave you the money. The, the police don't need to find a gun in order for you to be convicted of armed robbery if the person that is testifying is believed by a jury. And if, in fact, the person that stand, that's standing at the ATM uh, um, has her money taken, and that person doesn't know the person uh, who she has later on identified as being the robber, the question becomes, why would she rearrange her whole schedule to come to court and point at this person and say, this person ultimately took my money? Yeah, it's a possibility there may be some mistaken identity, uh, but typically normal people don't just walk around and say, hey, I think I'm gonna get involved in the criminal justice system today by saying that I got robbed and then pointing at, pointing at somebody. So generally, when you have somebody who is 40, 50, 60 years old, and they ultimately get uh, held up at gunpoint, the jury's going to believe that they got robbed at gunpoint. The question then becomes, um, <clears throat> is the person that they are now identifying in court, is that person the person who has, in fact, committed uh, the armed robbery? That is, uh, that becomes a question. And then, if you... Trial attorneys know this. Trial attorneys know that uh, there are certain things that you can do to challenge the identification, the distance uh, that the person was uh, from the, the distance between the, the person robbed and the person that got robbed, uh, whether, or not, whether or not the person that got robbed was focused on the gun, whether or not the person that got robbed um, uh, wears glasses, whether or not the person that got robbed was on medication. There are a number of different things that you can argue to suggest that the person that got robbed did not make a clear and accurate identification, could not make, and did not make, uh, if they did an identification after they were robbed, did not make a clear identification, and cannot make a clear identification at trial. But then it comes down to the 12 people that are in the box. Do the 12 people that are in the box believe the jury do they believe the person when the person testifies that that over there is the person who in fact uh, robbed me? Uh, and so that, that's how it works. It's not particularly complicated. Uh, it's not uh, a, 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 a mysterious, mystical place where you have to come up with the right potion in order for the jury to say not guilty. The, the, the defense attorney's power is in knowing how to select jurors to make up your jury of 12 people. They're not going to be your peers. Generally, they're not your peers. They're not going to be 18 to 28-year-olds uh, who uh, look exactly like you. A jury of your peers is made up of 12 uh, people who are over the age of 18 who are United States citizens who live in the county where the, where the crime was ultimately committed. That's called venue, the crime where the county where the crime was ultimately committed. The defense attorney, in having maybe two to three minutes to interview each of the potential jurors, um, has to make a, a selection based on his knowledge of people or her knowledge of people um, and body language and hand gesticulations 
and manner of dress and they have to make a judgment based on what they know personally and their prior experience in, in doing jury trials who of the people that I'm talking to out here in the jury pool are people that will believe me, are people that distrust the government, are people that will trust the person who is accused, which is the defense attorney's client. That's what we're talking about. And when you find 12 of those folks, you put uh, the 12 folks in the box uh, as you move forward uh, to, to jury trial. Um, 